0: William Randolph Hearst, you've heard that name, he was the publishing newspaper magnate on the West Coast, invested a fortune in collecting art treasures. When you have money, you can often collect things. He collected treasures and art from around the world. One day, Hearst read the description of a valuable piece of art, and he wanted it. It was rare and much sought after, whereupon he immediately Dispatched his buyer abroad to find it and to buy it. After months of searching, the agent reported that he had finally found the treasure. To his surprise and the surprise of Hearst, the priceless masterpiece was stored in none other than Hearst's own art warehouse. <laughs> the multimillionaire had been searching all over the world for a treasure he already possessed. Had he read the catalog of his own treasures, he could have saved a lot of time and even money. Contentment. Contentment is not found in what we have or even what we want. But contentment is a great treasure. And Paul talks about contentment in this passage of Scripture. Contentment is a very valuable thing. For every human being. As believers, we possess the possibility of having contentment, but we have to know where to go and to utilize what's available to us. With that in mind, let's kind of take an introductory course. We're at the end of the book. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians. We're at the end of the book. But it's really an introduction course on contentment. So I've entitled my message, Contentment 101. And Paul deals with that topic here. And he is our instructor. And by the way, he's in, of all places, a Roman prison, as you well know. But he's writing about contentment. And he's writing to the church at Philippi, the church that he started. And he's writing to us And I have a feeling and I think most of us realize that even though we live in a very affluent culture and society, there's not a lot of contentment. So these words should jump off the page to you and I. So I've taken the passage and divided into two sections. Verses 10 through 13 deals with contentment is a mark of a mature believer. We don't seem to find it earlier in our Christian experience, maybe earlier in life, but contentment is a mark of a mature believer let 's just read those three verses uh, four verses again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, your care for me has flourished again, so they cared for him when he was there planning the church, and then he comments here in the passage about they cared for him and sent offerings to him when he was at Thessalonica. But the commentators say it's been 10 years since Paul's been at at Philippi. And it's probably been a number of years, maybe not quite 10, but a number of years since he's uh, received anything from the church that cared for him more than any of the other churches that he had planted. Your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. And he makes it clear. Not that I speak in regard to need. I'm not commenting on this because my needs have gone unmet because of your neglect. That's, that's just the opposite of what he said. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And then he develops that further. I know how to be a base. In other words, I know how to live without. I know how to live poorly, maybe we would say. And I know how to abound. I know how to live poorly, and I know how to live richly. OK? Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he tacks on this wonderful verse, "I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me, who provides for me, who meets my needs." So contentment is the mark of a mature saint. And Paul initially started. His missionary expeditions the church of philippi enthusiastically supported it <clears throat> many people had been won to christ they had some means and so they supported him. they sent money and supplies but evidently over time the excitement died down and the resources dried up <clears throat> Some commentators estimated it had been maybe six, seven, eight years since Paul had received anything from the church at Philippi. It wasn't like us sending monthly support to the missionaries that we received. It had been some time since he had received a gift. Notice Paul doesn't mention what he lacked, nor the sparse communication he hadn't heard from them, or that Epaphroditus <clears throat> who came from the church of Philippi had gotten so sick in Rome that that probably he was truthfully more of a burden than a blessing. He intended to be a blessing, but he was sick unto death. We read earlier in the book. And so Paul doesn't mention any of those things as being a disappointment. Instead, he focuses on how much they meant to him, how much the Philippian believers meant to him, how good God had been to him, and that there was spiritual fruit abounding to their account. In other words, they were were accumulating uh, interest on their investment that they had invested in Paul, that they were receiving heavenly riches as a result of their support of Paul. He doesn't talk about complaining, even though he was in prison. All of us know, at times, we can struggle with complaining and murmuring, and griping. And over the years, I've heard from individuals who complain that either their church or their family or people in general have let them down. And they kind of go through life disappointed in others and just kind of dispirited. They are characterized by frustration or complaining or a grumpy spirit. Now, we all recognize it is part of our human nature. It's for some reason, we kind of gravitate that way. For some reason, we kind of look at the cup as being half empty instead of half full. And it's very easy. And maybe it is even as we get older to kind of just look at that. We look down our back trail. We look at some of our disappointments and how we've been hurt or whatever. And and it's easy to fall into a, a frustrated, complaining, grumpy spirit. It, we recognize that. It's easy to become that way, but it's not the spiritual track that God wants us to go on. And Paul is warning us about it, we could say. Or he's given us an example. He, by modeling, even though he's in prison, he hasn't heard from them, he hasn't received gifts, he's still thanking God for the church at Philippi. What, a, what an example he is for us. If you focus on what you don't have and how people haven't lived up to your expectations, contentment and joy will be an impossibility to, for you because you're focusing on the wrong thing, and all of us can, so we can't focus on the wrong thing. Otherwise, contentment and joy escapes us. John Cheever said in Leadership Journal, the main emotion of most adult Americans who have had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture, is disappointment. A lot of people, as they grow through the years, go through the years, their their main emotion, he says, is disappointment. Disappointment in life, disappointment in family, maybe disappointment in church, disappointment in other groups that they're involved with. God doesn't call us to live that way as Christians. Paul is saying it should be contentment. It should be joy. Philippians is known as the joyful epistle. We all experience the negative in life, but, but with Christ, we can, we can look on the positive and we can focus on those things. Notice three things about contentment. First, it isn't a natural byproduct of life. If parents want their children to learn contentment and joy, they have to train them. If adults want to really uh, manifest contentment and joy, it's a learned behavior. Notice what he says in verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, but I have learned. So maybe Paul's even admitting it didn't come natural to him or it wasn't characteristic of his early ministry experience, but he says, I have learned. It's something that God taught him. It's something that he knew he needed in his life. So it is It is not automatic. It is a learned response. So we can stop ourselves as we go through life. If we catch ourselves complaining and griping and And murmuring, we can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm a believer. I can live above my circumstances or even in my circumstances, I can have a joyful, contented spirit, not being a complainer about what God has dished out to me. Second, it usually takes us years to develop. And third, it isn't based on circumstances. That's obvious from the context here. It isn't based on circumstances. If anybody maybe could have complained, it's Paul. He's in prison for preaching the gospel and serving the Lord. So contentment isn't based upon circumstances. Contentment is based upon a relationship and focusing on the right things. So the obvious question is, where is your contentment factor here today? Is it, is it pretty low uh, because of where you are in your station of life or whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, health or housing or car or money in the bank account or whatever or family? Where is your contentment quotient today? Well, all of us can have a, a pretty high CQ uh, because we know the Lord is Savior and I trust that you do. <clears throat> Verse thirteen is often taken out of context. You know that he says in verse thirteen, "I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me." This isn't like Popeye's trusty can of spinach. I grew up in the Popeye era, you know, where he squeezes the can when he's you know, olive oil is tied to the to the uh, tracks, and you know, Brutus is about to run her over or whatever the case is, and he pops the can of spinach and swallows it down, and, and Popeye all of a sudden becomes a superhero, you know? That isn't what this verse is saying. That isn't what this verse is saying at all. It isn't akin to Christians taking anabolic steroids. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, builds me up, gives me bigger muscles or whatever the case is. That's not what it's saying. We all get it. It, it, it doesn't say we can do anything. We can't do the impossible. That's not what it's saying. In context, it is saying whatever difficulties we face. Remember, that's the context of Paul's in. He's in prison. Whatever difficulties we face as Christians... God's power, God's grace is available to us, and all of us are going to say at times in our life, wait a minute, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I bargained for. This is not what I thought I had coming when I, when I became a Christian. I, I didn't expect this. I didn't, I didn't expect things to take a 180 on me. I wasn't I wasn't banking on that, but God's power is available to give us the grace and contentment that we need to go through our trials, is what he's telling us. Let me give you an example of that. Robert McQuilkin for many years was the president of Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina. Matter of fact, Starry grew up just a few miles from Columbia Bible College. It's now called Columbia University. So when I would uh, visit her family, we would visit her family, I would often jog to Columbia Bible College, run around there and jog back. It was a, a nice run. Robert McQuilkin was for many years the president of Columbia Bible College there in South Carolina. In 1981 McQuilkin's wife Muriel developed the First Signs of Alzheimer's Disease. For almost eight years, McQuilkin lovingly carried on the responsibility of president of the college and loving and loving husband with his wife. Then in March of 1990, McQuilkin announced his resignation in a letter with these words of explanation, love and encouragement. He said, my dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I have been able to carry her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It is not just discontent She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me whenever I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot uh, get to me. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of this announcement of my resignation in chapel. So he's writing the letter and he's already announced it in chapel. He says, the decision was really made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word and a man of integrity uh, who has something, and integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt to her. Duty, however, can be a grim and stoic taskmaster. So there is more. I love Muriel. She is the delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm, Loving occasional flashes of wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and her tough resilience in the face of her continuing distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her, I get to care for her. It is a high honor to carry to care for such a wonderful person whom you love. I think that kind of embodies in one area or one aspect what Paul is talking about here. It doesn't come natural for us to care for someone lovingly for many years, someone who disassociates themselves from us. Maybe we would say has somewhat lost their mind, is very confused and becomes angry and all of that. It takes grace and it, and it takes really contentment that the grace provides for us to continue to do that. And that's what he's saying in verse 13. I can do all things. Whatever circumstances of life, whatever trials God puts us in, whatever difficulties we face, we can have the, the, the power, which translates into grace, which provides contentment for where we find ourselves. And Christians need to model that. Christians need to put that on full orb display because the world doesn't have it. And the world needs to see it. So I see, first of all, that contentment is the mark of a mature saint. Does that characterize you? Second, that generosity is the sign of a grateful believer in verses 14 through 20. Generosity is the sign of a grateful believer. Let me read those verses again. Nevertheless, you have done well. So he commends them that, even though it's been years, that they sent a gift through Epaphroditus, and he commends them, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know Also, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, where they are, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You were exceptional. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once, you sent aid once, and then again for my necessity. So while he was starting the church in Thessalonica, they sent two gifts, so he could really devote himself to ministry. Then he goes on to say... uh, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all, and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things, which is what prompted this letter back to them. uh, I received from Epaphroditus the gift that he brought from the church of Philippi, the things sent from you, which are like a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Another promise, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Generosity is a sign of a grateful believer. Paul looked at the Philippians' gift as an investment. Notice the language he uses. An investment that would pay them rich dividends. He says in verse 14 that they had communicated. <clears throat> that, use, that word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's the idea that they shared. They shared impulse trials, and they shared from their financial means. So he is saying the church gave materially to Paul, and the church is going to receive and had received spiritually from the Lord. That's a principle, folks. That's a truth in life. That's a truth for believers to, to, to bank on. When we share our material means, God will, will share spiritually with us. The Lord keeps the books. And he never fails to pay Wonderful dividends, spiritual dividends when we're generous with him and his work. He likens the Philippian believers to priests. Look at verse 18. That their gifts are a fragrant sacrifice uh, to the Lord. He, He conjures up in our mind an Old Testament priest that, that lays the sacrifice on the altar and pours the libation on top of it and the sweet incense, and it it goes up through the temple, and and the picture is that it goes up into the very nostrils of God, and God is pleased at this sweet-smelling aroma. He says, that's your gift. Your gift is wafting up to heaven, and God sees it, and he's pleased with it, and he's going to bless you as a result of that. So... How is it possible, we can't read these words and other words in the New Testament without thinking, how is it possible for someone who has received the greatest of gifts, the greatest of gifts, which of course is salvation. Whatever gift you've ever received, and all of us have received gifts, birthdays, Christmas unannounced, whatever it is. But the greatest of all gifts, how could we receive the greatest of all gifts, which is eternal life through God's Son, and not have a reciprocating, generous spirit towards the Lord? How can that be? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It's not scriptural. It's not Christian. If we've received the greatest of gifts, we naturally want to give back with a reciprocating type of spirit. Listen to a few verses. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. There is one that scatters like a sower, sowing seed. There is one that scatters, yet he increases more and more. There is one that withholds that is more, more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul shall be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. So the picture is he that sows the seed, he's going to gather much. But he that withholds the seed, he's not going to reap a harvest. And he's liking it to, to spiritual investment. Another verse Proverbs 22 9 says, He who has a generous eye shall be blessed. He sees a need. He's not not blind to those things. He sees need. He, He wants to be involved, and so he gives to that need. He who has a generous eye shall be blessed. A New Testament verse, 2 Corinthians 9 6. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's a principle in the agricultural community, and it's a principle in the spiritual community. Everybody here probably knows I grew up on a farm. And we had not only a dairy herd, but we had about 700 acres. And in Michigan, we got a lot of rain in the springtime. And we would sometimes sow a field, would plow it, disc it, drag it, and then my dad would come along. He was very particular about straight rows, so he wanted to plant the field. So he would, he would plant the corn or he would plant the beans and then would have flooding, and not all our fields were tiled. In Michigan, you tile the fields. Uh, you, you hire a, a machine and, and a group of workers. They, they have this great big giant wheel, and it digs down eight feet, six, eight feet in the ground, and it lays clay tile. And in Michigan, it's to get the water off the land. Out here, we use irrigation to get water on the land. It's just the opposite there. So the water sinks down, goes in those tiles, it goes into a main tile, and then it goes into a ditch. But not all of our fields were tiled. So sometimes my dad would invest in all the work and the equipment that plowed and dissed and dragged and then the seed that was sowed and the fertilizer that went in with it and then the field would lay underwater because we got a whole bunch of rain. And the crop was, the seed was all destroyed washed away, or rotted. Now, my dad had to make a decision. I, I can tell you what it was every single time. He would wait for that field to, to dry out, and we would drag it again, and he would sow it again, because I understood, if he didn't sow another crop, he wouldn't reap a crop, and he would lose all of that investment. But if he sowed it again, at least he would get it back in a, maybe a great crop. So we all face hardships. We all face setback. We all say, well, I've got reasons why I can't give to the Lord's work. But if we invest in it, God keeps the book and he blesses us. Let's look at verse 19. And my God, it was Paul's God in the Philippians' God. It's our, our God. We all have the same God. There's only one true God. Jehovah God, and he says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So this is certainly one of the most familiar, book, uh, familiar verses in the book of Philippians, and it's probably one of the favorite verses in the New Testament, but it's tied. This verse is tied directly in the context of a generous spirit. That's what he's, that's what he's, that's what he's summing up here. He's summing up the person that's that's uh, sacrificial and generous in their giving. He says, "God will supply all of your needs." So it's tied to that. If you separate the two, then it's not a promise that you can claim. So he's saying, "If I am generous with God, I'm generous with God's word. God is going to meet my needs, and I can pillow my head at night, and I don't have to worry." That's us. And let me tell you, folks, I, I can testify to that. And there's, there's dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds, we'd say, of people that could testify that very thing. But somewhere early in our Christian life, someone taught us about tithing and giving an offering and giving sacrificially. And God has met all of our needs and, and probably most of us say we've prospered beyond our ever wildest expectation. And it's not because we're smart or we're great investors or, you know, we're above average in, in some area. It's because God is blessed and God's promised to do that. Whether you're a teenager or you're a widow or you're a married couple and you got young kids, whatever it is, God's promised to meet your needs. So let's just claim that promise and move forward and God will take care of our needs. We all should have an insurance protection I believe in it, whether it's health insurance, or car insurance, or house insurance. It helps us get through those unexpected trials in life. And the Bible certainly encourages us to save, and it encourages us to, to plan for the calamities of life and old age. But the best investment, the best insurance you can buy uh, for now and eternity is a generous spirit towards the work of God. The New Testament Christian has a wonderful promise in verse 19. All the riches of King Jesus are at my disposal and at your disposal. Several years ago, a couple were listening to a radio program. Most of you know I was on KRKS radio for 20 years, Christian radio here in town. And uh, they were listening to KRKS, and they listened to our program that came on at 12 noon, and they decided to visit. They were a young couple. And we went to lunch at Olive Garden over here on Wadsworth, and I had the privilege of leading Denny Dimsoff and his wife, Rhonda, to Jesus Christ right there in the restaurant. Denny got saved, Rhonda got saved, and they started coming regularly to our church, matter of fact they adopted two children. One was a special needs child. Many of you remember Denny and Rhonda. And then when we planted Grace Baptist Church out in Parker with Ward Smith, they decided to go with that group of people, the 40 or so people that, that went with Ward out to Grace Baptist Church in Parker. And they served in that church. But I remember they were here for a couple of years before we planted that church. That one Christmas, Denny called me up. Christmas time is always a busy time for all of us. And in the ministry as well, things are going on. He called me up said, Pastor, I, I want to I take you to lunch. I said, okay, okay. And this is like two days before Christmas. We went to lunch and then he handed me an envelope. And of course, he said, open it. And I opened it and it was a very generous check. Denny inherited a printing shop, a print shop and printing business in those two years he had been saved, a year and a half, two years he had been saved, he understood, he got a hold of the idea of giving back to the Lord's work. And God had begun to bless him. So he told me the story of how he had learned to give and God was blessing his business. And he just wanted to give to the Lord's work, kind of a Christmas gift to the Lord's work because God had blessed him in those last couple of years in an unusual way. There are many stories like that that I could tell and you could probably personally tell because the Bible teaches generosity is the sign of a grateful believer and really a a believer that that trusts the Lord in his promises. I hope you're there. If not, I hope that you'll get there really soon. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, God doesn't need your money. God has a gift for you. He wants you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only way to heaven. He's the only way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father in heaven except by me. So he's, he's the means, he's the way. If you don't know Christ, we want to be able to help you with that. We want to share Christ with you and you can have assurance of your salvation. But as Christians, we need to examine ourselves about two areas. Do I have a contented spirit? Joyful contentment. And if not, Lord, help me to get there. Help me to understand that I got everything that I need. Not everything maybe I want. Things haven't turned out exactly how I planned, but I got everything. In Christ. And then, Lord, do I have a generous spirit? If not, help me to get there, too. Help me to start right now being generous with the Lord and his work.